Hi folks, welcome to the World War Station podcast with myself, World War II explorer, Lawrence Waller. Today I'm joined by Normandy Battlefield Guide, military historian and presenter of World War II TV, Paul Woodarge, as we turn our attention to looking at the 2nd Battalion, Royal Ulster Rifles and their experiences in Normandy during that summer of 1944. The riflemen hold a rich history, with their origins dating back to the late 1700s and seeing action during the Napoleonic Wars and the First World War. And in this episode, the first of two parts, we shall be following in their footsteps and that of Paul's great-uncle, Lieutenant Cyril Rand, who was a platoon commander with C Company. We will be looking at the training and the build-up to Operation Overlord, embarkation and landing in Normandy on Sword Beach on D-Day before turning our attention to those fierce early engagements that Cyril and his men experienced around comms on plane in those opening days of June 1944. If you wish to help support the World Station podcast by becoming a supporter on Patreon, you can get directly involved in the podcast with questions you wish to be answered and have your say on topics you wish to hear discussed. And that's just the beginning. Discover more by visiting our Patreon page, patreon.com slash ww2nationhq. The link to this is also in the bio below. Thanks very much for your support. Anyhow, without further ado, let's dive right into our latest instalment here on the World's Nation podcast. Before we jump to D-Day and those events in Normandy in that summer of 1944, I'd like to go right back to the beginning of the war. What have been the experiences so far in the war up until this point for the 2nd Royal Ulster Rifles with the 3rd British Infantry Division? Well, I mean, they were in France and Belgium in that early stage of the war, the you know the the phony war period, right up to around the time of the Dunkirk evacu- evacuation. But they were never quite in the worst places. They they don't kind of come up in those generic sort of general histories about that period because they were kind of moving all the time. They never saw any really intense action, although I probably wouldn't say that to anybody who was been with them in 1940 but compared to what other people were facing they really weren't um so they were there they did their bit they're up near Louvain they're up kind of between Brussels and the and all the canals and things near Ypres but I always find the interesting thing about the the Royal Oster Rifles at that part of the war is it was a real breeding ground for officers who went on and did really cool things with perhaps other units later on in the war it seemed to be a regiment that had um uh the ability to kind of allow for new ideas to come through. I think that's why a lot of people from that unit went on to other things. Would well, you have some examples of those officers? Well, one is Corin Purden, um, who famously was part of the San Nazaire raid, ended up being in Colditz. He was a Royal Oster Rifles officer. Um, uh, Lieutenant Bala Braden, who was um, later with um, Wingate in Palestine, was there. Uh, E.F. Trotsky Davies, who was later on dropped in with the British mission into Albania by parachute in 1943. Terence Otway, of course, famously from 9th Parachute Battalion on D-Day at Merville Battery. A lot of the 9th Battalion guys in the Airborne were former riflemen from the Royal Oster Rifles. So, um, you know, you could go on with some of these people that were there in the early stages who went on to bigger and better things. It, re- You know, Davies, by the way, was the CO and then later replaced by Harris. So... I don't know quite where this reputation came for being a, a, a kind of a breeding ground for these inventive officers, but something about the regiment had, uh, maybe it was its international kind of flavour because there were Irish, English, Southern Irish, Scots in it. I don't know, but something about it was a little bit special in terms of creating these kind of charismatic leaders. 
certainly some incredible characters you've named there. Um, in the summer of 1942, the rifles were sent to Inverary uh, for combined operations training. Was this normal procedure or had the rifles kind of been earmarked or picked out for something special, really? I don't think so. I don't think they were picked out for anything special. I think it was just a standard thing within the third division that everybody went through that. And reading my uncle's uh, or great uncle's memoirs, it was just training, training, training before he joined the battalion, after he joined the battalion, just consistently training and training and training um, for various types of amphibious assault with the training getting more and more honed and precise as the war went on. In the early stages before he joined the battalion, they were kind of landing out of any old spare ships the Royal Navy had and kind of improvised things. And then later on, it went right up to the, you know, the, the planning of the absolute um, type of way they were going to be landing on D-Day itself. So the, the boat teams within landing craft. So I, I don't think anything particular special. I mean, you know, we talked about it on a World War II TV show a few months ago with, with our mutual friend, Ben Main, about how just how many people went through some of these training schools. It, when it was just... It was everybody went through them. Uh, if you were a British infantryman in Great Britain in 1943, 1944, you kind of went through one or other of those schools. Well, Paul, you touched on it there. It's something I want to look at. I'm sure our listeners will be really fascinated to hear that you have a personal family connection to Second Royal Horse Rifles. Uh, you've already mentioned your uncle there, Cyril Rand, serves as an officer with C Company during the war. Can you tell us a little bit more about him and how he came to find himself serving with Second Battalion? Well, it's interesting because after all these years, I mean, he's, he's passed away now. I don't know much about his like origin story in that I, I, I believe he was a territorial in the London Irish Rifles before the war or possibly a cadet. But the thing is, I was meeting him when I was in my kind of teen, early teens and I didn't ask him the questions then that I would ask him now about, you know, how did you get into the army? It was always about wanting to know about D-Day and, and the, you know, the exciting combat stuff. So I'm not exactly sure, but he was close. He was from West London, Chertsey. And I believe that's how he got involved with the London Irish Rifles somehow pre-war as a cadet or something. And so London Irish Rifles kind of the sister regiment of the Royal Ulsters. And, and that's what he kind of, I think he selected he went to Oc 2 in 1943, so officer training. And I think he either had requested to join the Royal Ulsters because of the London Irish connection or that's where he ended up. But I, I've still got a bit of gaps in my knowledge about, about that early part of the war. But you know, obviously he'd been you know, college at the beginning of the war. He wasn't in the, he wasn't, uh, in the army already. He wasn't a pre-war soldier or anything, well, regular. But I believe he said he was a cadet or a territorial. But I still don't know whether he was conscripted or whether he volunteered. It's one of those things I've yet to find out. But he he found himself in the Royal Oster Rifles in April or May 1943 um, and, you know, became an old, a, a rifleman kind of for the rest of his life. Ended up, we can talk about it later, but he ended up a major in the London Irish Rifles TA um, by the end of his career. So he kept that continuation with the with the Irish, even though he was from West London and had not a jot of Irish blood in him whatsoever. Well, maybe we can focus on that period from sort of April 43 to April 44 before we get that final run into D-Day. What was his experience during, during that time? You kind of touched on the training, that build-up. Can we go through that period, please? Well, I mean, I'm drawing this information from his own kind of unpublished memoir that was um, something he circulated to a kind of family and friends, and I think a couple of the museums have copies of it. But what I find from that is how he is useful for me as a historian is how he kind of um, 
indicates his learning curve as both a platoon commander and a soldier you know in that he talks about things he got wrong and lessons they they learned i mean one for example they said in the early stages before they've got into proper landing craft when they're using these kind of any old ship they've got available they realize the importance of waterproofing everything i mean literally everything you know even even your cigarette tin inside your battle dress blouse pocket went inside a condom uh, everything inside there got wrapped up in some kind of protective because uh, of, of wrapping because the water just went everywhere and that was one thing he learned he also there was an operation uh, or training uh, um, landing when they were practicing firing the two inch mortars uh, from the landing craft to the beach. But because the landing craft was pitching and rolling so much, it landed kind of just in front of them, almost like at the edge of the water. So they got off the beach running into their own smoke. Smoke they were meant to be kind of putting forward to kind of stop the, 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 en- the enemy. There was no enemy, it was a training exercise. And he and his whole platoon ended up coughing their, their guts up, running through their own smoke. So he kind of learnt that you you had to think about when you were holding the two inch mortar and the fact you had to allow for that pitching and rolling of the landing craft and his memoirs are full of these little learning curves of just how not to do things and then how to do things and it is just by constant repetition uh, of doing it again and again and again but interestingly the thing he always remarks on is how little they had uh, opportunities to actually fire their weapons because of the shortages of, of ammunition that you know, if you're reading about an American unit training in that same period, they would be going to the range, you know, two or three times a week, blatting off round after round down the range. The British Army in that period of the war, all available ammunition was going to the front, wherever it would be, Italy, Sicily, you know. So a lot of it, of the actual weapons in from, uh, training was done in theory. So they had the, the kind of that twin sighting mechanism you could use. So the instructor could lie beside someone with a Bren gun and he could by seeing through his little part of the device he could see what the guy behind the Bren gun was seeing and he could say yes you're on target or no you're not on target but very little actual firing of ammunition i think my uncle used to say to me something like he fired about 10 rounds of ammunition through 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 his rifle and he carried a number four rifle which is key to when we get into a story later on you know like in three months he put like 10 rounds through his rifle which for anyone military watching this or listening to this now would think that's bizarre, you know, a platoon commander only firing like 10 rounds in three months. But that's the situation they were in. It's a really interesting point because you read accounts, uh, obviously now, of the German troops in the build-up to D-Day and how little opportunity they've had to use live ammunition. And we just assume, or presume I should say, that the British are not in that situation. You know, they've had plenty of time on the Rangers, plenty of opportunity to hone their aiming abilities as it were but it's very interesting to hear that i've never heard that before well maybe it was just my uncles but they didn't trust my <laughs> uncle with live ammunition i don't know but that's the you know the recurring feature and of course also as a platoon commander you know his his journey is very much joining a unit that has got that experience some of the guys have been through dunkirk that you know we talked about that my uncle wasn't there himself and you're coming in as a junior subaltern just out of octu you know you and you've got to establish your authority over these men, some of whom have done their, done it and been there and, you know, been in combat and how you learn to kind of earn their respect and you have to kind of lead from the front, but you can't pretend to show, you can't pretend to, to know how to do things that you don't know how to do. Um, so he talks about that a lot and also keeping the morale of the men up. He was very close to the men of his platoon. Um, and so, for example, when they were in Scotland uh, near Loch Fine, there was, um, uh, 
three local girls they used to call the uh, the three witches who made it known that they were kind of would be in the woods of a night and anybody soldier who wanted to get a bit of um you know he never kind of stopped those things happening he understood his men needed that you know release of steam they needed to be able to go off and have have fun and things like that and in my, in my great uncle's case he was quite inexperienced in that himself he had a fiance who was in the in the wafts he would try and see periodically but it's very interesting because as you know reading british memoirs there's a lot of um not dishonesty but there's a lot of dryness in accounts where they don't really talk about getting things wrong or learning on the job it's lots of dates and lots of i gave the men this to do my my great uncle kind of was good at admitting that he wasn't perfect when he went there in fact at one point I think it was either was his company commander or the the battalion commander said, you know, you're you're quite a good platoon commander, Lieutenant Lieutenant Rand, but you're not a good one. You know, you're quite good, but you're not good. You can definitely get better. And that was after coming back from some three day exercise or something where he felt he'd done quite well. But the CO said, Yeah, you did quite well, but you didn't do really well. And and so he's honest about the fact that he does take a long time to learn the skills that would eventually, I suppose, in a sense, will lead we'll find out later, kind of saved his life. Turning, I guess, to our main focus in this episode, the experiences of D-Day and the Normandy campaign for 2nd Battalion. April, May 1944, as momentum builds for the opening of the 2nd Front, these men, you know, including your uncle, come to find themselves down on the southern coast of England with thousands of other troops in marshalling Area A, you know, the biggest of those concentra- concentration areas around Portsmouth. 2nd um, R.U.R. spend the majority of the time in Campaign 9 and even take part in Exercise Fabius Three just one of several large-scale dress rehearsals for landings. Paul, can you sort of tell us about the battalion's preparations and experiences in the, that final run-up to Operation Overlord? Well, th- this is interesting, again, because my great-uncle has a slightly different experience to the men of his platoon. I think my great-uncle missed Fabius. I think he was away. He had done course after course after course during this time. If he wasn't with the battalion training, I mean, if he did three weeks at um, an engineering school where they learnt how to um uh uh, discover and and you know what's the word i'm looking for um deactivate booby traps they he learned about explosives he didn't know he went on a bangalore torpedo troop uh, course he went on a motorbike riding course all these things like that so he was constantly going off battle school where he was just there as a member of the regiment but he was with other officers from other units so other third division officers fifty division stuff so he actually wasn't always there for some of the battalion stuff. And I think that in itself is really interesting because, as you know, we talk when we read about these events, we read about the commanding officers of regiments and battalions, and we read about the experience of some of the men in it. But the platoon commanders often, because there was a lot of turnover, I don't think we we really focus on just how well trained these guys were. And, and my uncle's case is one of just over like a year and a half, constant, constant, training but specialized training i mean he went went in there and he you know he said himself to me he probably could have become an engineer officer or he could have become a tank officer because he'd done all those things he went and did tank cooperation courses and things like that so um it's a real testament to how well the british army were putting its platoon commanders through these experiences to get them ready to lead men into combat what were conditions 
and the atmosphere like in the camp during those final few weeks and days? Did, did he talk about that? Was he there for much of that period, as you said? Yeah, he, he was for the last few weeks. He was a sporting sports officer. So it was all about keeping the men's morale up. So he was organising boxing tournaments, hockey, uh, skittles, card games, tiddly, even tiddlywinks. Uh, <laughs> so sporting from everything from tiddlywinks up to boxing. But it was for him... Um, just this idea of making sure the men are ready, but they're not bored and they're not got time to think about things. And lots and lots of putting Blanco on the webbing, taking Blanco off the webbing, um, you know, sorting out your kit, sorting out your kit again and again and again, and just keeping the guys busy. And he had an ability to kind of get to know his men and, you know, spend time with them, understand their letters. He talks about, um, the when they all wrote their last letter because he was in charge of collecting his platoon's last letters and the various codes they had for they were put on the field service postcard. I'm just finding the bit in the book here. Um, I mean, some of these you'll, you guys will know, but he was quite inexperienced. So, Swalk sealed with a loving kiss, Italy, which I hadn't heard of, which is I trust and love you, Holland, you could put on as a little acronym, which meant hope our love lasts and never dies. And the rather more intimate one explained to him by his Batman was Norwich, which was knickers off ready when I come home. Knickers <laughs> uh, technically starts with a K, not an M. But these were the little acronyms. And it shows you that he was trying to keep his men's, he was not trying to be one of the men, one of his platoon, but he was trying to be, understand that, that they were human beings as well. And they needed to do this kind of stuff. So I think that's very interesting that, that he's there as almost, and I'm going to say a father figure, and yet actually he was younger than most of the guys in his platoon. I mean, he had some really old kind of late 30s Southern Irish kind of guys, volunteers uh, in his platoon who would have been around the block way more than he had. And yet he tried to kind of be a father figure, brother figure, and also a leader, kind of re re retain that distance as well. So, um, yeah, it's it just keeping the, the men um, at a fine edge, ready to go into combat, but not so fine they break down. And just keeping them busy, I think, is the main thing. No easy task, I'm sure. In mid to late May, uh, there was a number of prestigious visitors that the men of the 2nd Battalion encountered whilst down on the southern coast before the off. You've got Montgomery, Eisenhower, His Majesty the King even visiting. Did your uncle ever recall his experiences of meeting any of these guys? He doesn't mention Eisenhower, but he mentions the King and he mentions... Montgomery and the, the King incident is really interesting because it came just after the battalion had been issued bicycles, which was something my uncle was really quite surprised about because, as I said, they've been spending a year and a half training to do these amphibious assaults, and suddenly, relatively close to the, the actual invasion, they were given these bicycles, uh, which we've all seen in the photos. The Canadians used bicycles, commandos, but the Royal Ulster Rifles, one of those battalions that were meant to cycle to objectives, so 600, I think it was, brand new green painted army bikes turned up and at, I'll read, I'll just read from my, my, my uncle's memoirs here. Um, so he says, uh, the division was to be inspected by his majesty, King George VI. And after a great deal of spit and polish, we were taken in trucks to the field where we were to be inspected. Uh, naturally with so many men on parade, the inspection consisted of a quick walk through, through the ranks, followed by a march part of individual regiments. And they had were also rifle regiments. So they marched fast as well. So they, they, they had, they were, they were used to being the fastest unit in the division because they marched when they're marching at rifle base and they also were, were cycle trained or they were training for cycles. So some of the men were actually on cycles and some were marching. And this is what my uncle then says. He says, um, 
When the time came, we marched off briskly, and just to show off a bit, our pace was, pace was increased considerably. The story of His Majesty's remark as we marched past could well be apocryphal, but he's reported as saying, those buggers will be in Berlin before the others are off the beaches. That's, that's the quote he says, that the king allegedly said, those buggers will be in Berlin before the others are off the beaches. And that's because of the marching speed and the fact that some of them went past on bicycles. I think one, I think a company went past on bicycles, something like that. Um, and Montgomery was the fact that they had been given real instructions to not smoke. And the big thing that Montgomery was known for was asking the men questions about, so, you know, Lieutenant so-and-so, how would you uh, uh, attack a bunker that was situated off to the left? And so how would you do this? And so the men, the, particularly the officers and the NCOs, were squirreling away, reading all the military manuals for hours and hours before Montgomery turned up because... The company commander had said that if anybody is asked a question by Montgomery and can't answer it, you're in big, big trouble. So his memory of Montgomery is having to bone up on all this information so they would get the questions right. In the end, I don't think Montgomery asked anybody of my uncle's platoon anything that they couldn't answer or anything at all, in fact. But it, it was I think it, from my uncle's point of view, it was it was a it was something different to do among to break the routine, you know, because it was just endless repetition of the same thing. So someone famous turning up was a chance to do something different for a few hours for any of those interested there are quite a few photos of the second iur on the iwm website in the build-up to d-day including the visits by montgomery when they're down there marching camp at a9 at grenville hall so i'll post a link to a few of those on the podcast website so you can take a look turning to operation overlord d-day um the second IUR depart from Portsmouth on LCI from South Sea and LCTs from Gosport. What were the conditions like on board these vessels and how did the crossing go for these men? You know, they're destined to land on Saw Beach with the 9th International Brigade. Well, it was quite a long crossing because they weren't going to be first waves. There's a lot of hanging about. They, they, they weren't kind of priority landing in England and they weren't kind of priority coming off. So some units that were going to be going in in the first wave probably had shorter crossings. So again, it came down a lot to keeping his men happy and keeping them busy and things like that. But it, surprisingly, when you when you think about how big that invasion was, and there's so many accounts are there, people saying it looks like you could have walked across the channel on from ship to ship to ship. It's kind of the sense of loneliness that, um, that, that some of the the men faced, particularly those who were in a command position. Um, and for him, that was the, the, the defining moment was a chance to kind of reflect on the year and a half. In fact, I'll read again here um, what he said there. He said, this is a 10 o'clock at night, the night before. He said, about 10 o'clock, I decided to stretch out on my bunk for an hour or two. And it was only then left alone with my thoughts that for the first time, I began to consider my responsibility as a platoon commander. I had never doubted my ability to command my platoon, but now we were shortly to be going into action. I was struck by the awesome thought that on every decision I made would depend the well-being, safety, and even the lives of the 36 men under my command. I consoled myself with the thought that my commanding officer and company commander had confidence in my ability to take a platoon into action. Otherwise, I would have been posted away from the battalion long before this. With those happy thoughts, I dismissed the entire matter from my mind and never again questioned my ability to carry out a job either in or out of action. So a kind of personal reflection on whether or not he would be able to do his job. And then he kind of convinced himself he would be able to do his job. But there wasn't, there were incidents on the boat. Um, a company's officer, Major Hyde, 
Um, there was a big, they just when the men in the battalion were priming their grenades ready for action the next morning, which is, you know, you get the fuse ready, you actually prime the grenades. There was an explosion and, um, you know, the dust cleared on the boat and the men were covered in blood and it looked like it was scary. The officer kind of walked down and saw these men covered in blood. But in the end, it turned out to be one of those self-heating soup tins that had gone off. It was a tin of Heinz tomato soup that went off and a grenade hadn't gone off and the men were just covered in soup. Uh, but it was one of those reminders that, you know, you are going to be seeing... This isn't blood. This is just soup. But very shortly, you are going to be seeing blood and you are going to be seeing, seeing dead men for the first time. And so, um, again, nerves, keeping the men busy and just getting ready to go. Well, Destin, like we touched on there, destined for landing on Sword Beach, I believe Queen Red Sector near Lyons and Mare. How did the landings unfold for the rifles and were there any casualties? Um there there were the very light casualties i mean the battalion as a whole are coming in late the beach had been cleared the dd tanks the first wave had kind of done their job um you know they jumped off the landing craft and my uncle went underwater he wasn't a tall chap and the water went over his head so he, he was hoping to kind of walk ashore dry but he didn't because he was the first off the landing craft um but it also meant they had the time to see what had happened earlier because as they're coming off the beach they're seeing dead from the first wave around them and they can hear gunfire in land they can see you know knocked out vehicles things like that around them so although their experiences were very um minimal that day uh you know you're seeing your first taste of combat as you know we we often focus too much on the assault waves and forget that the whole leapfrog nature of how the landings are planned is yes of course one unit has to come first onto the beach, but then another unit will leapfrog over that unit and take on the next advance. And we often kind of forget about that, that we think we focus too much on the beach itself and don't think about the objectives in land. And, and talking of the objectives, by the way, this is where, interestingly, of course, in you know, we know now the, the objective of the third division was was Kong, which was, you know, 10 miles inland. Um, but the way my uncle used to speak about it is, is that he never really thought as a platoon commander that they, that the, the getting to Caen was a serious prospect. Although it was an order for them, they went into it thinking about it as being a very ambitious thing that they were unlikely to achieve. So he, he refers to it being the objective, but always kind of muttered under his breath you know we were never going to get there so it's interesting that he had this inkling it's not an inkling it's pretty obvious that you're not going to make it 10 miles inland really um but he you know he talks about what the objective was but what their realistic objectives were and as far as he was concerned if he could if he was inland and he could no longer see the beach by the end of june the 6th it would be a success from him so he's kind of going to measure it by if you get two or three miles inland that for him would be everything achieved well, how did events unfold on the 6th of June? They, you know, they landed. What happens from then? Well, I mean, the Royal Oscar Rifles are, are firm, forming up around Hermanville. Um, and there are a couple of photos available. You see the men of the battalion because you see the bicycles that they were going to be using. Um, so th their job was then to, to wait for other things to happen. And as we know um, from other things that were happening on D-Day, you get the delays at places like Hillman and Morris. And there was a 21st panzer counterattack that happened at one point the royal Oster rifles were kind of sitting there waiting thinking they might be new have to be used to kind of be sent in to to kind of fill the gap with this 21st panzer movement so lots of kind of 
waiting for other things to go into place before they could actually go out and do their own things. So a lot of uncertainty for some of these units on D-Day is as 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 they had to kind of say wait for these other events to kind of fall into place, the jigsaw puzzle, so to speak, to fall into place around them. So um, they ended up the evening of June the 6th, just north of the Perrier Ridge. Um, and they'd had a couple of patrols. They'd seen a couple of dead Germans and particularly a patrol because my great uncle was always involved in patrolling. That was one of his kind of skills. They'd been on a patrol on June the 6th towards evening and, they've, uh, and one of his men found a dead German and the, the German, dead German had the, you know, the, the photo album and the wallet and things like that and the picture of his wife and kids in it. And, it, it, you know, that standard thing you kind of see in the war film was of realising that the enemy also have a private life. They're like you. They've got mothers and fathers and kids and writing letters home. And that realisation that some of the information they'd seen in the kind of the training film was about the Nazis they're going to be facing. These are ruthless, ruthless troops who just have killing on their mind. The reality was a lot of the Germans they were going to face were just like them. They were young men a long way from home, terrified, who were thinking about their sweethearts back home. The Royal Rifles of Wardour makes for fascinating reading. Second Battalion clearly developed a great working relationship with the First East Riding Yeomanry quite early on during the preparations for D-Day. How important would this prove for them in Normandy throughout the campaign? Well, this is this is where my great uncle's references kind of diverge a bit from, as you said, the war diaries, because you're quite right. The relationship between infantry and tanks, East Riding Yeomanry was really pivotal to how they achieve things in Normandy. But my great uncle never mentions them by name. He never mentions them by unit, never mentions any commanders. It's always just the tanks that were supporting us. And I don't know, I don't think it's any reflection on their birdies. He's, all, he's always very complimentary about the things they do well. And the tanks gave us support there and the tanks were able to do this. But it seems that he, for whatever reason, never kind of went into any kind of relationship with any of these guys there. They, I don't know whether that's because as a platoon commander, his focus is just on his platoon and kind of that connection with tanks is kind of at a higher level. I don't know, but I, I, I looked through the book and there's never any references to the, to the right yeomanry as if they're people. It's always just the unit was there. And it's, I don't know what to make of it, really. It's just, it's just interesting. Well, turning to D plus one, the village of Cam's Cams and Plans has today become, you know, a synonymous byword of association with the second battalion. The rifles were ordered to capture this village. This was a company strength attack. What actually happened to D Company on D plus one? Well, my great uncle was watching it. He, he was in a position where his C Company were kind of in support and he was at the front of C Company. And he, his, his memoirs of that day are quite contrasting because the first thing he remembers is there were two birds sitting in a branch in a tree above his head who were singing away completely happily as if it's just a normal day and just you know birds in a tree singing but then seconds later four german aircraft and i don't know what aircraft they were came in and strafed everybody um so you know that reminder that there's kind of a normal life going on in a treetop near you but then there's this weird kind of world war ii thing going on around you but he watched c company head off towards the village and anyone who's ever been there you're talking about one of those typical in that area village of it's kind of a fortified and by 45 we've been back in you know two or three hundred years ago big sort of six eight foot high walls around the village sort of central crossroad in within the walls and then around it these are open wheat fields and it was sort of thigh height 
um, crops around the field there. And we, we know the score, but there's supposed to be naval support. There's supposed to be artillery support. But by the 7th of June, not everything is in place. A lack of forward observers, a lack of intel about what was in these villages. And my uncle just watches D Company go in there, uh, you know, walk in in the standard way through the fields there. And there are elements of 21st Panzer, possibly 12th SS, although I'm not sure. My uncle always said there were 12th SS there, but I I'm, I think it probably was 21st Panzer, mostly in Combon Plain, but you know, who knows? There might've been a few 12th SS there. Um, and he just watched this, come out, this company go in and, and just, and any riding yeomanry in support and the sense of, as he was watching them, this isn't going to work. You know, that you're, you're seeing them, the distance they're crossing. And then the German artillery opened up from within the village and, and mortars and, you know, the dust cleared and you've seen a company, not not wiped out by any means, but it was, it was. I think D Company lost their commanding officer, 11 killed and 17 wounded um, in a matter of minutes uh, in Combon Plain. And so my uncle had a kind of a bird's eye view for that, um, which was, which was, yeah, you know, quite stressful for him, of course. As I say, it must have been a sort of great burden, sort of witnessing this. Obviously, not being involved in the action, but witnessing obviously his friends going off into that sort of intensity of fire. Yeah, no, uh, and and he, it seems to be that he was always, even if he wasn't in combat himself, he was always there to witness things. You know, you get some of those memoirs why, where people they're talking about things that they heard from someone else. It seems that he was in a position because of his kind of patrolling stuff, he was, he was always kind of in the front that he saw lots of the things that even though he wasn't involved in personally, um, which was, which was something that he would remark on again, this learning curve and, and how well he'd got to know these people. That's the other thing. These comp these platoon commanders, company commanders that he'd spent a year and a half, two years training with everyone was a friend and, and seeing them, seeing them killed instantly, um, and, and I think what you said to me personally was how it was so frustrating that all the training they had done didn't stop random events happening in that, you know, you could be sitting there and suddenly artillery would open up on you and you're dead. And, that, and no amount of your training for that can, can prepare you for that. You know, and that suddenness and randomness of, of, of life just being taken away by something that is completely beyond your control. He always felt very um, frustrated by that. And he was quite a superstitious guy, not religious as such, but kind of superstitious in, well, maybe not superstitious. He had kind of this um, idea about fate and, and luck and things will just happen. Something that my dad, because I, I, I often refer to, I, I, you've been noticing, I sometimes I call him uncle, sometimes I call him great uncle. Technically he's my great uncle, but I often recall, just call him my uncle Cyril, but my dad, is his nephew and my dad had that same when he was growing up post-war the same kind of fatalistic attitude to things are just going to happen and it's just you know deal with it that's one of my dad's mantras and he learned that from his uncle my great uncle of just you know things will come at you out of the blue and there's nothing you can do about it do you think that attitude almost helped him through this experience of normandy i think so yeah i think he was he had the ability to be kind of pragmatic about things. In fact, we, you know, we're going to come on and talk about the patrol he led that, that kind of next night and, uh, and how he would choose the men for it. And um, this particular patrol they went to, this is, this is before the, the next attack. They haven't, the D company attack into Combon Plain has failed. So this is the 7th of June, but they need to get this town. So two days, that will village, two days, 8th and 9th of June is going to be the, the full blown, you know, brigade attack on the, on the village. And my uncle was out on a reconnaissance and, 
um, Rifleman Moore, who's one of his platoon, kind of gathered around the men and wanted to have kind of some kind of prayer group thing. And my uncle found that a bit weird. It was like, really? And he was—he actually questions it. Do these men? Uh, do they think they're going to? Um, you know, is God going to listen to them if they do a prayer? My uncle found that a bit weird, but he was comforted in a sense by the fact that these men thought that. So if they thought that saying some words would help them, that was good for him. If that—if that makes sense, that concept. Yeah, no, I 100% get that. It's, um, again, going back to that care of the men, whatever they need to get them through the experience and understanding understanding those requirements, I guess, as a commander. Well, let's touch on that nighttime patrol. Um, I think, as you said, D plus two, 8th of June. Um, there's kind of raiding and patrolling going on from both sides. But what's your uncle's experiences of it? Well, I mean, he was... He was they've, they've learnt that just walking into these villages and hoping for the best isn't kind of going to work that they've kind of learned that um so now it's to kind of find out what we're going to go into before we move the battalion or the regiment or the brigade forward so um he was chosen to, to lead this patrol because of some skills he'd kind of shown in training and by the way he also remarks in this about how later on he learned not always to pick the best men because this was his kind of well, apart from one on june the 6th this is his kind of first moment where in a sense the regiment is relying on him so he went to his platoon and chose his best men and one of his best men for everything was was um rifleman mccabe and mccabe was a scrounger he's the typical british army you want a chicken he can get you chicken you want eggs he can get you eggs he can find alcohol he can find girls all that kind of thing and mccabe comes into our story later on when my, un my uncle gets wounded and mccabe was one of his he, he was he knew the ground he was southern irish I think he'd been some kind of pre-war poacher or something like that. He just one of those guys, new ground. But my uncle said that later on, he didn't always choose the best men for the patrol because it didn't seem fair to put the best men in harm's way all the time. So he'd kind of share it out a bit, uh, which was interesting because you hear that going off on a tangent. Ed Shames, who was the third platoon commander in Easy Company 506, when you talk about the legendary men he had, like Shifty Powers, Earl McClung, same thing didn't always choose the best men because you're not you're not being fair sometimes choose the, the not so good men because that's and again that's my uncle's kind of fatalistic kind of spreading things around luck kind of attitude to life so anyway yeah the patrol i mean i could go into great detail about it there but they go you know because in the in the memoir it's about seven or eight pages of going out on this patrol um but the big thing is on their way out uh they, they're coming to the grounds of a chateau they see one of his men i think it might have been mccabe or more possibly sees a german bicycle leaning against a tree across sort of a couple of hedgerows and, and attached to the, the the frame of the bicycle is a spare barrel for an mg42 meaning that this bike must be part of an mg42 crew and there must be an mg42 crew somewhere near this bicycle and their, and their decision is does he try and deal with this machine gun doesn't know quite where it is or does he carry on going but he's now going on beyond where this machine gun is so he's now if things go wrong he'll have to get back past this machine gun and he he goes at great length about the the decision he you know you're making these decisions on the fly you know i've got to get information for the regiment but i'm now taking my men beyond a position where we can expect there to be a machine gun but luckily there was a trench there was a sort of ditch um, and he was able to use a ditch to move forward. So whoever it was near this machine gun probably didn't hear him. And he'd done lots of training in advance about how to keep their equipment 
quiet. They did lots of things. They taped up all the buckles and things, and they went skeleton order out there, and you know, um, Hessian wrapped around anything that would rattle, so that they were completely silent. But you know, I could do an hour just talk about that one patrol that probably wasn't more than a few hours. But for my great uncle, it was kind of the most vivid moments of the entire war because they went out there they saw what they had to find see they saw where some of the drone positions were and then when they came back the bicycle had gone um so he never had to encounter this this machine gun and but he goes at great lengths about the decisions you're making minute by minute while leading men out you know you've got your orders but you're exposing your men to safety it's really fascinating Following that bloody nose, as it were, you know, on the seventh of June, what was the you know Lieutenant Colonel Tommy Harris's plan to take the village, and what sort of opposition did they face for this battalion strength attack? Well, in in the town or in the village, were going to be your, your typical kind of at this point of the war, where the Germans would kind of put together these battle groups of a bit of artillery, a bit of pioneers, some infantry, a couple of self-held guns, a tank or two, and you see this time and time again in these villages, kind of between Caen and the coast. Um, so they kind of know because of the patrol where they can expect German positions to be, but within the village itself, to some extent, was an unknown quantity because. Combon Plain is quite wooded, the middle, even around the, the, the wall that circles the town, there are kind of woods there. So even if they had aerial photos, you don't really know what's in there. You know that C, a D Company have walked into this horrendous position two days earlier, but they went in there without really knowing how many Germans were in there. But they did know kind of where they were, if that makes sense. So for the plan on the 9th, it was a standard A and B companies would move up to the edge of the village in the first assault, then C and D who would be behind would then overlap A and B and then move through the whole village from one side of it to the other through the village. And they had tank support, artillery support and naval support. And the idea was it would be much more coordinated, um, which it turned out being. And C company um, my uncle was with 15 platoon, kind of had a fringing kind of flanking um, role in it, again, because of my uncle's ability to kind of be on his own. I think that's one of the skills they recognized in him is that he had this lone wolf attitude. That's why he was good at patrolling. There are some officers who are great, but they need their fellow officers in their other platoons beside them. My uncle was kind of independent like that. So he often had these kind of solo missions. Um, and so he, you know, he was moving in towards Combon Plain, kind of the, the little kind of a tramway rail station that's no longer there that he was leading his men to. But the interesting thing that he always used to remark on to me a long time later, years later, is that um, his sergeant, and I've just temporarily forgotten his sergeant's name. I'll go back and sergeant. Bear with me. Sergeant Rainey um, was one of these late 30s guy who'd been in the army for a long time. And Sergeant Rainey, the first thing he kind of did when Cyril, my uncle, joined the platoon back in training days, he says, strip yourself of anything that makes you look like an officer. So my uncle didn't have the bino case and the 38 in a, in a, in a uh, holster and all that kind of stuff. Um, he wore standard 37 pattern enlisted webbing, you know, 37 pouches. He did have a pistol, but he used to keep it kind of tucked into the back of his trousers around the back, or sometimes he'd keep it tucked inside his battle just blouse. He would keep his maps uh, either tucked inside his blouse or in his trouser pocket. 
and he would use uh, a number four Lee Enfield when he's doing kind of attacks across open country. And then if it was doing something like wood clearing or urban warfare, he would carry a Sten gun. So he would select the weapon for the, the, the nature of the engagement ahead. And when um, the assault goes in on June the 9th, um, it's similar but better planned to the one on the, on the 7th. But it seems that from within the village, through the walls, the Germans can identify who the officers are because they're the guys with the officers webbing and the Sten guns and perhaps they're pointing and they're pulling out map cases and things like that. And my uncle didn't have that. And, and C Company did lose um, uh, some of its wounded, some of its platoon commanders and NCOs. And my uncle felt that he survived that because he looked like the blokes. And it was that was something he used to look back on and think, thank God I went in there looking like one of the guys. Now, as you know, Lawrence, you know, the, those things like a 38 set with a radio mast or, or carry, you know, uh, carrying an officer's webbing or map case, they, they just make you bullet magnets, don't they? Um, so he knew already, he's, he's th three days in, he's already learned the things that some units would take weeks to learn um because combat take you know you, you take that time to understand what not to do but he had some good men around him who told him don't do this make sure you do that so he feels he survived that assault on june the 9th because he looked like one of his men i remember reading some of the memoirs which are in uh the rifles are there uh by david orr and david truesdale's book which is a really interesting read and there's actually a few funny stories um that your uncle mentions for that attack isn't there yeah, that, that, they're not in the book I've been reading this morning, actually. So you'll have to do those ones yourself, Lawrence, because I, uh, um, um, I don't. Those ones were from a later interview he did or an earlier interview he did. So I'm not sure what ones you're talking about. You know, it's just interesting. He refers to um, his men come up to this sort of, I guess, outhouse, as it were, and chuck a smoke grenade in there, and they hear sort of this coughing, spluttering, and out come these three French, French farmers because they've been in there milking their cows. Uh, it's just, quite, you know, you don't expect these sort of scenarios when you're going into combat, do you really? I remember that one now. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and, and he's, he, he always manages to kind of reference how it would go from moment of levity to a moment of tragedy in the blink of an eye. Um, and he'd felt he'd kind of got he'd, he'd done his role pretty well i think the advance into combat play and he did his bit and he didn't his platoon didn't experience any of the real tough fighting there but when he gets into the center of the village or wherever they were supposed to stop one of the platoon runners from uh the other platoon in c company ran across and said you've got to come over lieutenant rand because one of my uncle's great friends uh lieutenant bobby dizerans uh, was was lying fatally wounded he'd been he'd been killed you know wounded in the assault and probably was wearing the you know the officers webbing and the carrying a pistol i don't know but had been shot and and you know died there kind of in the kind of movie trope way kind of a few seconds after my uncle arrived there he was able to speak to him for minutes and he kind of died and i think my uncle was the guy who closed his eyes and you know told the the medical officers to you know, get this guy out of here he's been killed and so that was the, the loss of a friend coming immediately after humorous moments was something that was really, really common for the, these units. And although it had been a successful attack, you're talking about in total 11 officers killed. Now out of a, a battalion of 700 or so, 11 officers killed, 182 ranks, other ranks lost, um, you know, killed, wounded, and, you know, in, in a successful attack, you know, you're talking 20 to 25% losses taking this village. Um, 
which is, yeah, as we know, par for the course for those early stages of the Normandy campaign. Yeah, we focus, as I said earlier, so much on that D-Day. We've got we've got off the beach, and we forget that villages like Comborn Plain, and I'm sure people watch listening to this won't have necessarily heard that village, but for the Royal Ulsters and the Lincolns and the Cosbys, you know, it's one of the bloodiest square miles of Normandy, East Riding Yeomanry, as we know, our mutual friend Ben Main and the, the late great Alan King. You know, that that's really, really horrible, shitty fighting there. And yet it doesn't roll off the tongue, Combon Plain, like other towns like, I don't know, Villa Bocage or um, places like that in Normandy. But yeah, for those who were there, it was really nightmare. Well, following its capture, you know, the capture of the surge, what happened to the battalion in the preceding days and weeks before Operation Charwood? Uh, a month of sitting in the same holes, essentially. Um, and this is where my great uncle, both in his memoirs and talking to me, it would be like listening to tales from the First World War, because that's kind of what the sense you get, that the Germans are kind of not trying to push the British back so much. We're not quite ready to push on yet. So it's kind of a month sitting in the same holes. You know, we know by now the Canadian 9th Brigade has been halted on its way to Carpique Airport. Places like Villeneuve-Buisson and Oti and Buron are now kind of no man's land. And the same thing here, Lebesy Wood, all those areas now are just kind of stuck with everything building up behind for a month. And, you know, we've had the storm that's going to delay getting supplies in. And this this is the kind of era when, when although they're holding Combon Plain, the Germans are only holding the next, next village across. So they can kind of hear, they can smell when all the Germans are smoking their cigarettes and pipes because the smell of tobacco wafts across. They can smell when they're cooking. They can hear when they're having a laugh. And this is like, the, you, you know, you read about the, the no man's land in the trenches in the First World War. You know, you're close to cl- with the Germans. But this is where... You know, McCabe, the scrounger, came into his own because all this time, his platoon, 15 platoon, never short of eggs. They're never short of um, milk uh, because McCabe comes back with everything they ever need there. But the story that I want to share, which is something that uh, I didn't see my great uncle as much as I'd like to in, in when I was young because I was living in Essex. He was in West London and just, you know, I'd see him, I don't know, two, three, four times a year. My granddad, who was wall artillery in England, he lived... 500 yards down the road. So I saw him all the time, but my great uncle didn't see him very often. Um, he, when he would talk about the war, he would be very, um, well, not very, he'd be quite dry about it. He'd be, uh, he, he didn't show much emotion. He'd talk about, you know, he went through there, he lost a few men there, and that was quite a bad time. In his memoirs, he was more emotional and more honest, but when he spoke to you, there was a reserve, and he wouldn't make eye contact very often. He would kind of just, you know, look at the ground and say, lost a few over there and lost a few over there. But the one time when he would come back to Normandy, he would get um, really emotional. It was when we'd be walking through Combon Plain to where his foxhole was, and he could go straight there, although it was now where it had been in part of a wood, it was now in the back garden of a house because the village had expanded and now it didn't quite look like it was. But the view he had across kind of south towards Combe was the same, although the approach to the foxhole was now through a garden anyway. He would be fine telling these stories until he would see in the field beyond sheep because there was sheep there in World War II and there were sheep there when he would go back in the 90s or 2000s. And the reason this is interesting is, is as soon as he would see his first sheep, he would just break down and get all emotional. And it's because after the attack 
on June the 9th. So he's he's got in there. They've taken the village. They've lost all, you know, over 100 men killed or wounded, etc., etc. But his his I think it was McCabe. It might have been Sergeant Rainey had dug him a really luxurious foxhole. And and my uncle had we often he did like that did like a a, a guide to foxholes. As, as you read about the Normandy campaign, he always describes in great detail how they got better and better and better. And sometimes they his men would dig in little shelves and, and, and like <laughs> covers for it and like doors and stuff made out of things they would scrounge. So he, his foxholes got better and better anyway. Because my great uncle was just exhausted. He led the platoon in, you know, he's, he's seen his friend Dizarin's die and he's now just exhausted. So his sergeant or McCabe dug him a foxhole. Next morning, this is June the 10th. Um, uncle's waking up in his foxhole, kind of puts his eyes out from underneath the ground, the ground sheet, you know, first light of sun, it was early morning. And there's a sheep standing over his foxhole looking straight at him. But the sheep has this really kind of crazed look in his eyes. And as my uncle's kind of eyes focus and he kind of get just the daylight, he realized the sheep is missing the whole lower part of its jaw. And it's kind of trying to eat the grass, but it can't eat. And it kind of probably can't know, work out why it can't eat. It doesn't know that it's missing. It's going into shock. And they saw this sheep there looking, and it was obviously been a casualty the day before. It had been caught by a shrapnel, blown itself up. I don't know what it was missing most of its jaw. And my uncle looked, you know, kind of made eye contact with the sheep. And he, as soon as he would see a sheep, you know, this is now 60 years later, he would go into buckets of tears. And it was really weird that it was the sheep story that would get him emotionally invested, not losing. He would just have told the story about losing his best friend. And that was always something that was really un, a learning curve for me as a young historian to learn that men who've been in combat won't necessarily talk about the things you'd expect them to talk about emotionally. They would talk about the other things. The funny end of the story is, of course, they end up eating the sheep. They, they, they realize it wasn't going to survive. They, killed it, cooked it, and everybody had lovely roast mutton that night. But yeah, first thing that would set my uncle off would be seeing a sheep. That's really interesting. I suppose it's it's that, and I don't mean to come across in any way the wrong way here, but you, you almost expect you're going to war, you're going to lose men. I suppose you, you can't, you're not really prepared for the, the other casualties of war, you know, the animals. Yeah, I think I think I think that's it. You hear that a lot, don't you? It's the the unexpected civilian life that because they're collateral. You know, you you expect. You know, he said he, as I said, he was talking to himself on the boat going over. I'm going to be leading men in combat, and some of them are going to die because of decisions I make. You've kind of accepted that, but an innocent sheep that's neither a Nazi or an allied, it's not there for any reason other just to to to, to live in a field and eat grass, has become caught up and a victim of humans killing each other. And I think, yeah, that for that reason, probably is why it would set my uncle off. Um, and he didn't show much emotion, but the sheep was always the thing that would kick him off. Thank you for listening. And also big thank you to Paul for joining us today. As mentioned earlier, the IWM has a wonderful collection of photographs in the Second World War. So I'll post a link of a few of these mentioned in the podcast on the website, www.nation.com. So people can take a look at these themselves and follow the second IUR story in the build-up to D-Day and beyond. Similarly, I will post an image that Paul has kindly shared with us of his uncle, Lieutenant Cyril Randall C. Company. You can find all this by following us on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube at World's Nation and also Instagram at World's Nation HQ or visiting our website www.nation.com. 
And if you wish to help support the Wellbeing Station podcast, please do subscribe and leave us a review, as is always greatly appreciated. Alternatively, you can also go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash ww2nationhq. A link for this is in the podcast bio below. And there you can discover more about how you can get involved with the podcast, including being able to have your sound topics you wish for me to cover in future episodes, and even sneak previews where we look ahead so you can have the opportunity to fire in questions you would like me to put to our guest speakers. Part two, the conclusion of our conversation with Paul about the 2nd Battalion Royal Ulster Rifles and his great uncle's experiences will be out very shortly. In this episode, we'll turn our attention to the events of July 44 and the rifles and of course Cyril's personal experiences during Operation Charmwood, the assault on Hill 60 and entering the ruined streets of Khan. We also discuss the actions during the advance towards Truon during Operation Goodwood, as well as much, much more. Anyhow, until next time, this is Lawrence Waller signing off for this episode of the World's Nation podcast. <laughs>